one thing that has made this possible uh, to be able to go overseas like this has been to have two new elders in our church, Sandy and Chris, and I'm thankful to God that I know that I leave this church in good hands, and uh, so you guys make sure you come and you're faithful to support these men as they lead the church in our absence, and it's a blessing to have that. I mean, I, I can't even remember, honestly, the times in my past ministries where I've had the privilege to have men within the church to be able to call on in this absence, and so this is really good. So. I know they'll do a great job and take care of the Lord's work here while we're gone. So with that said, I'm going to turn our attention back now to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 for this morning's time in the Word of God. And we're going to be talking about now how to be totally devoted to Christ. How to be totally devoted to Christ. And we're going to be considering this morning verse 2. This is Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I'm going to read the text, and we'll begin looking at it together. The Word of God says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Author Fletcher, who was the former head of the United Negro College Fund, coined the well-known phrase, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. The campaign using that slogan, launched in 1972, helped to raise more than $2.2 billion and put more than 350,000 minority students uh, to graduate from college. Although I definitely agree with the need to help those who need financial help to educate them and to give them a good education, I take a little different approach to that saying. There's a couple of things I would say about that saying regarding the mind. The first thing is I would agree with this. The mind is a terrible thing. That's where I would start. Secondly, it should not be wasted. But we need much more than education. We need not much more than degrees from your universities and your colleges. We need transformation. Our minds are sinfully depraved, according to Scripture. And if you are honest with yourself, you know that you have the same problem in your mind. The mind can know a whole lot of stuff. And it can know a whole lot of things of how to do things, but it is sinfully depraved and doesn't need just education. It needs transformation. There's a lot of people who have been very, very smart in the history of the world who have lived and died, who had more education and more degrees than I could ever begin to think of. A good example of that educated mind was one that we all are familiar with, Albert Einstein. Einstein was raised by secular Jewish parents and attended a local Catholic public elementary school in Munich. In his own notes, he said this, he gradually lost his faith in his childhood. I quote his words, he says, I came to a deep religiousness entirely apart from his irreligious parents, which, however, reached an abrupt end at the age of 12. Through the reading of popular scientific books, I soon reached the conviction 
that much of the stories of the Bible could not be true. By the way, that was about the same time there was a lot of inroads of the Darwinianism into the education system that was saying that the Bible could not be true. Albert Einstein himself stated, I am not an atheist, and I don't think I can call myself a pantheist. He said, I believe in a God who reveals himself in the orderly harmony of what exists, but not in a God who concerns himself with the fates and actions of human beings. Einstein went on to express his skepticism regarding the existence of a God, such as the God of Abraham or the Abrahamic religions. He often described that kind of belief as naive and childlike. In one letter that he wrote in December 1952, he stated, The idea of a personal God is quite alien to me and seems even naive. On January 3rd, 1954, he also wrote, The word God is for me nothing more than an expression of a product of human weaknesses. The Bible is a collection of honorable but still primitive legends which are nevertheless pretty childish. For me, the Jewish religion, like all other religions, is an incarnation of the most childish superstitions. I thought when I read that, Jesus' words, he says in the book of Matthew, except you become like one of these little children, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. The very thing that he criticized as childish is the way in. It's the way into the kingdom. And I think all of us understand today, especially in the culture in which we live, that how a man thinks directly affects his actions. It directly affects everything about him. In fact, we could say that what you think and how you think is the most important thing about you. Listen to what it says in Proverbs 23, verse 7. For as a man thinks in his heart, you know the rest of it, so is he. Matthew 15, 19 says, for out of the heart or out of the mind, the same thing, out of the heart comes evil thoughts and murderers and adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witnesses and slanderers. And we've seen in the last few decades the degeneration of our own culture as a result of what men and women think. It's directly due to what you believe and what you think. You cannot remove a God, the God, in fact, and his word from the homes and the schools and the universities and expect good things to happen. The only restraint that was in place to stop the mind from descending down the slippery slope of debauchery has now been completely removed. And there's a full-scale assault that has been brought on the way we think about the basics of life, the fundamental things of life. Nothing is now out of bounds or forbidden because the mind has now been given freedom beyond the word of God and the boundaries of scripture to think as it wills in its full scope of depravity. And frankly, folks, we have yet to see just how far this will go. Think about it this way, because our society and our country as a whole has been abandoning God for some time now. The Bible teaches that God has abandoned us as a culture. We all know the text, and I would have you turn to it just for a moment. You probably could quote it. 
but Romans chapter 1, verse 21 and following. Romans 1, 21 and following. Paul's talking about the initial understanding that man had of God in creation, and also we could even say this could be the personal journey of every individual. They have an initial knowledge of God. They understand there is a God through creation. The evidence is abundant and clear, but instead of acknowledging that God, worshiping that God, and following that God, they deny him his glory. That's why it says in Romans 1.21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. That word know there in verse 21, where it says, although they knew God, that is not talking about something that they knew in the past and forgot. It's a present participle. It's a aorist, rather, active participle. And the idea is that having known God, that is, they possess the knowledge of God, they continually have this knowledge of God deposited in them through creation and through conscience, even with that knowledge, instead of giving God the rightful glory and the rightful place of worship in their lives, it says in verse 21, they did not glorify him. It isn't that they once knew him, now they don't, then they don't glorify him. It's while they know him, while they know of him. This is not saving knowledge. This would be called what some would say common grace. The knowledge that all of humanity is guilty for because they know there's a God. It even says in the earlier verse 20 that they are without excuse, without excuse. No man stands before God. No woman stands before God without full clear evidence that he existed. But even though they know there's a God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile. That word simply means vain or useless. They became vain or useless in their minds. The word can be translated worthless. Or one lexicon says destitute of real wisdom which is clearly what this has in mind. It's following the wrong path, getting off the truth. Verse 22 says, they profess to be wise, they become fools. The word fools is the word that we get the word moron from. It actually has the idea of being made dull. I don't know if you realize this, but this same word translated here, fool, is used over in Matthew 5.13 to refer to salt losing its flavor. In other words, whenever salt is no longer salty, it loses its purpose. And whenever a mind is no longer able to think and to reason and to accept the clear evidences that are laid before them about who God is and to acknowledge that, your mind has lost its very purpose. God did not create your mind just to make you a smart person so that you could make things, invent things, or know things. He gave you a mind that can reason, that can think, that can understand, so that you can know the one true God. And you can understand that one true God. It goes on and talks about how that foolish mind that refuses to acknowledge God in verse 23 will go so far as to changing the glory of the incorruptible God the infinite God, the true God, 
And that mind will make a God in images of man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. It's utterly bizarre and absurd. It's like the prophet Isaiah talks about. Here's a man who takes a chunk of wood and he carves out a statue. And then he takes the rest of the wood out of the same chunk of wood and he burns it in a fire and warms himself by it. So he's burning some of the wood and he's worshiping out of the same lump of wood an idol that he made. Absolute total absurdity. But that's where a man goes whenever he denies God. He ends up in absolute, total foolishness. And he even goes on, and as a result of that, in verse 24, and says, therefore God gave him up. God gave them up. That's a judgment term, a judicial term, to give them over. And what did they do? In verse 25, they believed the lie. By the way, I don't know if you've noticed already in this text how much of this has to do with the mind, wisdom, Foolishness, lies, truth, all of that is about the mind. What a man thinks, what a man reasons. Verse 26, the second time it stated, for this reason God gave them up. Then verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. In this verse alone, in verse 28, there's a play on words there. The word translated here, did not like to retain God, is the expression of a Greek word, edakimadzon. And it's the word dakimadzo, which is to test metals and define whether or not they're pure or not, and, or to find whether or not they're genuine or not. That's the idea behind the word dakimadzo. And so what it's saying is, is that man did not find God worthy or genuine enough to even consider in his knowledge. So what does God do? In verse 28, the play on words comes. God gave them over to a debased mind. That's adakiman. In other words, you considered God worthless. God gave you a worthless mind then. That's what's going on here. You consider God is not worthy of your consideration, worthy to be considered in your knowledge. So God gives you a mind that is also worthless and not able to fulfill what God intended it to fulfill at the very beginning. So as a result of that, verse 29 goes on and says, they're filled with all kinds of unrighteousness. It even includes later on in that list of sins there, which is not comprehensive, by the way, but just a list of sins. One of them is evil-mindedness, evil-mindedness, undiscerning, do not have the ability to know the truth. These depraved minds, by the way, are what lead our country today. These are the depraved minds that do not have an understanding of God, have abandoned God, and God has abandoned them. There are all types of immorality and sinful attitudes and actions and absurd, literally absurd, ways of thinking today. They are knowingly or unknowingly destroying the very basic foundations of our culture and our families Our children are being educated in schools that work hard at dismantling our faith and support ideologies and belief systems that are anti-Christ. They work against your faith. They work against your belief system. Consider how far our major universities have drifted. Think about this. Harvard, Yale, and Princeton were pastor schools. They used to train pastors. Jonathan Edwards, at one time, in 1757, was elected the president of Princeton. 
That's just how far we've gone. And now in our culture, what do we have? We have these major universities that are training people to deny the faith. To reject the basic foundational elements of our culture, our family, and of humanity. I read this week about the monies that are given to these universities from foreign countries. This may be a shock to you. It was to me. I mean, I knew they gave, but I didn't know how much. So I just looked it up. And believe it or not, Qatar, which happens to be one of the places we're landing and changing planes or changing something there. Anyway, but in Qatar, since 2012, they gave $3 trillion $281 million plus dollars to our universities. The only one that comes close to that is China. China gave $1,733,000,000 to our universities. Now, if you're like me, I really can't think much further above 1000 Because I don't, you know, I don't really believe I'm going to be a millionaire. I'm not expecting that any time. And there might be some hiding in here somewhere. But I'm pretty sure probably there's no billionaires in here. I could probably almost bank my life on the fact there's no trillionaires here. Right? But just so you understand what we're talking about, when we say that Qatar gave $3 trillion to the universities over the last 11 years, 1,000 seconds, if you want to help you understand these figures, 1,000 seconds is 17 minutes ago. One million seconds is 12 days ago. One billion seconds is 31 years ago. Now listen to this. One trillion seconds is 31,701 years ago. That's long before the earth was ever created. My point is this. You're having countries, Qatar, China, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Kuwait, Russia, Turkey, Iraq, Lebanon, Pakistan, Venezuela, Syria. Those are the top giving countries to our universities in America. Now, I want to go ahead and tell you something. This is going to come a shock to you. But they're not giving just because we need a little help. Oh, you poor universities. Oh, my goodness, you're just suffering over there. We need to give you some money. They're buying influence, folks. They buy influence. They begin to influence the teaching of the universities. We are literally, listen to this, we are literally educating our enemies. We're educating the destruction of this country. Now, I know if this ever gets out to Washington, I'm probably going to be arrested. But you need to understand something, folks. They understand something that I think America has forgotten. The mind matters. And Hitler understood that if you could get the children, you can get the country. And these people understand that if you can train the next generation with ideologies and belief systems that are contrary to your Judeo-Christian values, then they can get you and they can get your children and they can turn this country. So we need to understand that 
there's more involved here than just an ed educated mind. Listen, there's nothing wrong with getting education. I think it's important to get educated. I kind of lost it whenever I was adding letters and algebra and stuff like that. I told my dad, I just don't see where I'm going with that. Right? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Bob. But I enjoyed fractions and woodwork. I could get that. It made sense to me. But I'm not demeaning an education. I thank God for the people who are educated way beyond me, who know how to facilitate some of these very complicated chemistry things that help me stay well. Also, nuclear sites keep us safe and give us energy, and at least for a while. But the point is, is that I'm not against education, but I am also very clear in my understanding that education alone is not enough. In fact, I would be very careful where you get your education. You can't even trust seminaries anymore. You've got to be very careful where you choose to go to seminary. It used to be pretty much understood that if you went to a seminary, you were going to get biblically, biblically educated, theologically ed educated, and you would train for your ministry. But nowadays, you might get an education that's going to cause you to question what you believe about the things of God, or you may have a whole different ideology whenever you leave that place. So you've got to be very, very careful. And there are very few seminaries and Bible colleges that affirm some of the basic tenets of the Bible. Now, this has been a few years ago, so I don't know where it is now, but just a few years ago, there were only six undergraduate Bible colleges that affirmed a literal six-day creation. Now, that, you, should be, you should be shocked at that. These are Bible colleges that read Genesis 1 through 11. So the mind matters, and it matters what you believe, and it matters what you think, and it matters how you are educated, and it matters what influences you. So if we're going to be educated, the most important thing we could be educated in is the Word of God. More and more, I'm beginning to wonder if it wouldn't be more healthy for the church. I have to be careful with this so you don't misunderstand me. But I think it may be more healthy for the church to stop reading all the books and read the Bible. I'm not against books. I've got books. But too often, our first response is, what does so-and-so say instead of what did God say? Let's go back and read the text. Let's go back and read the Word. Let's find out what God says about it. Let's get so familiar with Scripture, so as one said, infiltrated and infected with the Word of God, that we are so biblene that the devil and all the corrupt society around us and the culture have no beachhead or stronghold to influence us with it. In other words, as soon as you hear something that's contrary to what the Bible says, there should be an immediate reaction, almost like a, a biblical immune system. False doctrine, false teaching comes up or comes in or tries to influence you, or the culture says this is the way this should be, or you should think like this, or you should act like this. And because you're so filled with Scripture, there's an immediate for lack of a better word, sorry, gut reaction to that, an immune system reaction, all of your Bible immune cells just attack it. And I'm going to be straight with you, you know, reading books of good authors is not going to give you that. You read scripture, you spend the time in scripture, you're going to find that that's going to transform your mind. It's going to do a work on you that no other book on this planet can do. 
turning our attention to Romans 12, 2, that's what this verse is about. Did you know that Romans 12, 2 is the most shared Bible verse in the entire Internet? And I got that from the Internet. And you're supposed to believe everything from the Internet, right? Some of you know this already, but Dr. R.C. Sproul, who's with the Lord, with the Lord now, his ministry... Uh, basically was uh, named after Romans 12, 2. Whenever they launched their radio broadcast ministry in 1994, and when I saw the date on that, I thought, my goodness, I'm getting very old. Because, you know, it's just, it seems like that's been around a long time, but really it's not. 1994, Dr. Sproul launched the radio broadcast, you know it, named what? Anybody know? Renewing your mind renewing your mind and he said he turned to romans 12 2 to describe the broadcast purpose he quoted do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind he says from that verse was the launching of our ministry to cause the mind to be renewed In the same article that discusses this, it says God gives us the revelation of sacred scripture in order for us to have our minds changed so that we can begin to think like Jesus. Sanctification and spiritual growth are all about this. If you just have in your mind and if you just have it in your mind and you don't have it in your heart, you do not have it. But you can't have it in your heart without first having it in your mind. We want to have it in our mind and have our minds informed with the word of God, with the word of God. The key method, according to this, is that you and I have that which changes our mind, transforms our mind through the word of God. And as R.C. goes on and says in this article, this means nothing more and nothing less than education. Serious education, he says, in-depth education Disciplined education in the things of God. It calls for a mastery of the word of God. We need to be people whose lives have changed because our minds have changed. The battlefield has always been the mind. That's why Paul talks about it in Corinthians, the strongholds, he uses that term. Where the devil grabs hold of the mind, and it's so critical, especially as parents in these ages, you are battling things that most of us did not even deal with when our children were younger. You didn't didn't have to worry about when you went to Walmart what you might see necessarily. And have to explain that to your children at a very young age, in fact. So you and I are battling uphill, but listen, we're not battling without the power of God and the most effective tool that God has given to us, the Word of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We should be very positive on that. In fact, Romans 12, 2 is a vital hinge on the door of biblical truth. It is that which upon which the door swings. It either allows what's in that is right or it closes the door on what is wrong. So let's look at the text again, picking up in verse one, just a reminder of what he says here, because again, both of these verses are linked together with the conjunction and 
Paul is driving home a very important point, and as I told you before, this is a reaction to the first 11 chapters of doctrine. He has laid a very detailed foundation of the gospel, and now he's telling us, as a result of you having the mercies of God in your life and being saved, this is how you should act, this is what you should do. And then I would go as far as to say verse 1 and 2 are the foundation for the rest of the application of the book of Romans. Because all the things that he's going to discuss that are going to get very, very practical for all of us are based on your understanding of this text. And more than that, more than just your understanding of it, but your application of it. You will not be able to do, because there's some hard things, by the way. You read it for yourself. Go home this afternoon and read the rest of chapter 12 and ask yourself, can you easily bless those who curse you and do good to those who persecute you and speak evil of you because that's what he talks about in this text and the only way you can do that is if you are biblene if you are filled with the word of god and the holy spirit so that you're able to react in a christ-like manner to those who want to cause you all kind of hurt and trouble because of your faith so verse one says i beg you therefore brethren i beg you Based upon the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, starting there, he says, I want you to give yourself totally and wholly to God, not only your mind, not only your heart, not only your emotions, but your bodies. Your bodies, which is the means by which sin is often expressed. It starts in the mind and it feeds its way through the bodies. Not always, because you and I can be very bold in our minds and very evil in our minds without even expressing it in our bodies. But the point is, is what he's driving home here, here fighting that dualism of that day, that Gnosticism that said that the spirit was good and the body was evil. He says, no, no, God wants all of it. He wants all of you. He wants your mind, your heart, your emotions, your soul, your spirit, your body, all of you. He wants everything. Nothing less will do. After all, you have been saved you have been justified. You have been sanctified. You have been made a part of the family of God. You've been adopted. No one can bring a charge against God's elect. Who shall separate you from the love of Christ? All of that is there. Therefore, based upon the mercies of God, give yourself holy, H-O-L-Y, holy, and then also W-H-O-L-Y, holy to God, holy to God. Acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. We close with that last Lord's Day. Reasonable service translated in the New King James Version or spiritual worship. It's another way it's translated. The word reasonable is the Greek word we get logos from or logic from. The word service, latre, is a word that has the idea of worship. It was used in the priesthood of spiritual worship. So what Paul is driving home here is something that all of us need to really understand is that worship is not something detached from the mind. It's It's not detached from truth. In fact, I would argue that apart from the truth, there is no worship. I would argue without you understanding God and understanding what his word is, your worship can be off. I think it was Paul Washer, but I'm not sure if he's quoting someone else when he said, the most important thing about you is what you think about God. I agree with that. I agree with that. The most important thing about you is what you think about God. Because that that changes everything. And it affects everything in your life. And your worship... And by the way, the depth of your worship, the degree of your worship, the impact of your worship 
is directly affected to how much you understand about God. I've shared this before, and talking about emotion, okay? My wife will testify to you, I'm not a very emotional person. Every once in a while I get there, you've seen that. But the point is, is that I can remember, it's almost like, I can't remember the date I was saved. I can't give you a calendar date, okay? I, can, I, I remember what it was going on in my mind. I, I remember how I was reacting. I remember my conviction over sin. I remember how God changed me. I remember what I believed. I understand all of that, but I don't remember the date. But there was, some, there was another event in my life where I finally understood what worship was. And I remember I was sitting in a church not too far from here. That's a Reformed Baptist church. It's Three Rivers Baptist Church up in Irma. I was there. I had to go there because I had to find a church when I was in college. I had never been introduced to the doctrines of grace. I didn't have a clue what the doctrine of election was. I thought that was something you did in November. You elected somebody. And, uh, I mean, I, I had a very, very basic understanding of these things. So... I went there, and the pastor was teaching on the doctrine of election. And I can remember for the first time in my life, I was in absolute, total awe of God. And I was in, I was, I mean, I could, you could have smashed me to the floor. I was so humbled in the sight of God. I never experienced that before. Again, I'm not talking about that the emotion was the key, but the emotion was driven by the thought the understanding of this God could have easily passed me over and been just in doing so and righteous in doing so, yet he chose to save me. I couldn't get over that. I couldn't get over that. It was affected by the truth. I mean, as you know, you know how that is. You can, you can still, it's kind of like you can still smell the day. You, can, you know what it tastes like. You know what it smelled like. You know everything about it. I, I just can remember every single detail of that in my mind. Then the pastor said, I want to give you a couple of books. He sent me home with Arthur Pinkle, The Sovereignty of God. I literally wanted to quit school and just read. Because I was so overwhelmed with the God that no one had introduced me to. No one had told me about this God. I had this picture of this God sitting up in heaven hoping that maybe I would come one day. And he was just a defeated Savior. Oh, I hope he comes. And all of a sudden, my God transformed by the understanding of Scripture, this powerful Savior who was acting in history, who literally intervened, interrupted my life, radically changed me, regenerated me, before I ever knew what happened. And I just think that we need to understand that truth is so essential. Now, we all know this. You can all become academic, and that's all you are. We get that, right? It's easy to fall into that trap, to become academic, and that's all you are. You don't want to find yourself in that either. But you can't have the right kind of worship experience and worship response and even biblical uh, emotion, as far as that is concerned, without the right truth. That's what scares me so, so much today about a lot of the trends in the churches and the trends in the music, is that, you know, the music is very shallow, very shallow. And uh, it, it is, is actually geared toward producing an emotional response. And listen, I'm all for good music, and I'm all for music that can produce emotion, but I, want the, I need the truth. I need the truth to govern my response. 
to all of these things. Worship arises from a correct thought about God. False worship occurs with false thoughts about God. The centrality and correct thinking of our worship is born, literally, out of the next verse. Look at it again. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Not one word in this text refers to any feeling or emotion. Not one. In fact, the three phrases refer to the mind and the thinking of the mind and the mindset. The first one is, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. The verb here is a present, middle, or passive verb, and it's an imperative, it's a command. It can be understood two ways. It could be translated, stop conforming to the world, or, or uh, do not conform to the world. In other words, don't start it. Uh, many believe it's passive, stop being conformed. In other words, don't let the world conform you into its image, if you will. And the Greek word translated here for conform, it's a very important word. It's actually made up of two words, the word sin, S-Y-N in the English, and it has the idea of with, and then another word that has the idea of having an outward shape. Properly, it has the idea of taking on the outward form of the world because of an inward attitude or an inward mindset. In other words, you, it isn't just external, okay, because I know that sometimes as Christians we have a tendency to make everything external. And we say, you know what, he doesn't dress like a Christian. He doesn't look like a Christian. Oh, he has a tattoo. It's over with. No, that's, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about haircuts and dress styles. He's talking about how your mind is trained and how it affects how you react to the world around you, your worldview. Your worldview. What your world, how do you, you know, it's the, it's the glasses that you look through. When I was growing up, there was a country song called Rose-Colored Glasses. Ah, some of you all remember that. You're guilty. Anyway, so, and the idea is you're looking through your rose-colored glasses and it colors everything for you. And you see, your biblical worldview, whatever that worldview is, colors everything for you. You read everything, you look at everything, you listen to everything, you observe everything through your biblical worldview. And whatever that worldview is, how biblically correct it is, is going to affect your understanding of your world around you. And so he's asking us not to, and I think it's right to understand this is a passive verb that and I believe also, because I know humanity well enough, that it would be probably better to be taking this as stop being conformed to the world because there was the tendency, and there is the tendency in all of us, to allow the world to conform us into its image. I mean, frankly, that's where we live, right? We live here in this world. We see it all the time. We hear it all the time. This word is used also in 1 Peter 1.14 where it says, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust. That's the same idea. As you were at one time in your ignorance. As one author said about this word conformed in Romans 12.2, it refers to an outward expression that does not reflect what is within necessarily. And you can masquerade or you can put on an act but it does flow from the inner worldview or the inner ideologies that are affecting you. 
I've shared this with you before, that J.B. Phillips in his paraphrase, it's not really a translation of the text, he says that you could translate or understand this would be better. Don't let the world around you squeeze, it, squeeze you into its mold. Folks, I had to tell you, and I think all of us know this, we're being squeezed. We're being squeezed. I mean, man, it's coming at the church constantly to squeeze us into a thought pattern. And sadly, we have pastors and teachers out there that are succumbing to this and are promoting this and teaching this. But we're allowing the world to squeeze our ideas, our understanding of reality and the world and human, human, human nature and human sexuality and marriage and, and church and family life. All of this is being squeezed by the world Kenneth Wiest, uh, who's a Greek scholar, said this. You could uh, translate this verse this way. Stop assuming an outward expression which is patterned after the world, an expression which does not come from nor is representative of what you are in your inner being as regenerated, a regenerated child of God. And that's not all in one Greek word. That was his, really, commentary on the text. So he says, don't be conformed to this world. We need to know what the world, the word world means, though, because it's not the world in the sense of the earth. It's not talking about the physical earth. It's not talking about the planet. This is the Greek word ion, which has the idea of age, the age in which we live in, the cycle of time we're in, the present age, as Paul calls it, the present evil age which we live in, which is influenced by the devil himself and the demons, and the false teaching that circulates around us. And so he's not saying that you are not to live in the world. You live in the world as you are. You have to do certain things the world does. I mean, we all put clothes on. We all drive cars. We all eat food. We all do things that the world does, lost and saved. But here he's talking about not allowing the ideologies of the world, the thinking of the world, the, the present evil age and its system to squeeze you into its image and to make you reflect that around you. I think, and I've said this before, but I believe in the culture we're in now, a few years ago, probably four decades ago, maybe six decades ago, you know, you could be a Christian and you may have to go out of your way to make it clear that you are a Christian because you lived in somewhat of a moral cult, uh, culture or context. Listen, you can live a nominal Christian life today and stand out. You can. Because you're going to be against the spirit of the age. Against the thinking of the age. And we're not to live according to the, the prince and the power of the air, if you will, that we once walked in. Now, one author says that this uh, idea of the word age here, that demonic human philosophy or the spirit of the age, he calls it this. This is a long definition of it, but he says, it is that floating mass of thoughts, opinions, maxims, speculations, hopes, impulses, aims, aspirations at any time in the current world, which it may be impossible to seize and accurately define, but which constitute a most real and effective power being the moral and immoral atmosphere which every moment of our lives we inhale or again exhale. I want you to remember that. You get all that? Basically, it's everything that the world thinks about everything, the age in which we live, 
And we live and breathe in the midst of that. We live and breathe in the midst of that. And our challenge is not to be infected by it and not to be affected by it and not to be conformed and squeezed into that image. This is so critical to understand because this is where it all begins for all of us. And today, I mean, look at it, how it comes at us in all different forms, whether it's music or entertainment or TV or commercials or what we read or what we listen to. It comes in all different forms of our work environment, what people think and how they think and how they react and what they believe to be right and what they believe to be wrong, much of which is wholly unacceptable to God. That's why if you remember back when we talked in James chapter 4, and James was giving a very strong admonition and warning to the Christians there. He says, he calls them adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility with God? Whenever you align yourself with the ideologies of the world and you follow after those things, you're literally making yourself an enemy of God. 1 John 2.15, John says, do not love the world. And it could be translated again, stop loving the world. Or the things in the world. If anything, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And again, behind this, he's not talking about, you know, I can't love my pet anymore and I can't love my flowers and my garden. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the thinking of the world. That which influences you and changes you. He says in verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the desires of the flesh. And it doesn't have to be sexual desire. Any desire that is contrary to the things of God that originate in the flesh, the lust of the eyes, which is constant before us, right? We, uh, when I was down in Florida this past week, I, I took my mom to this little, well, I call it a little store. It wasn't a little store. It was like a Costco's. Uh, I, you know, and uh, she wanted to go in there and see if she could buy something. Well, we walked in there, and you know, the first thing you see are these massive TVs. I mean, I'd never seen one that big before. This thing was like 86 inches wide. It was huge. And uh, you know, she starts looking at that. Oh, I'd like to have that. So, Mama, you don't need that. <laughs> you couldn't operate it anyway. So then we're walking around, you know, and there's this, you know, there's these massive piles of soap. I mean, like, how does anyone ever need that much soap? And I began to see right away, we don't need to be in this store. Because she's wanting to buy this and buy that. I said, Mama, you'll never use any of that. I said, you won't live long enough to use all of this stuff. The point was, is that when you go in there, you talk about this, what they call eye candy. I mean, all this stuff, and you start thinking, hey, I could save some money right here. And you end up buying these massive bottles of stuff that I don't know if we'll ever use at all. I don't know how I got off on that, but I'll tell you the truth. <laughs> it just reminded me of the lust of the eyes. Lust of the eyes. I could be seriously affected if you took me to the Bass Pro Shop. I get really affected in there. But I get it. I mean, I get it. You all understand what we're talking about. The world pushes this on you all the time. And it doesn't necessarily have to be material things. It doesn't have to be stuff. It can be prestige and position and influence. I mean, one of the things that astounds me on social media, especially Twitter, is some of these 
pastors, frankly, that want to make sure that they get all these likes and they want to make sure they're out there all the time. I'm thinking, do you do anything else in your life? If I go in there one time a day, they're always there. It's like they never leave Twitter land. It wasn't many years ago. I think it was probably six or seven years ago when all this stuff started with social media and you had the likes. And I remember uh, one person telling me, you know, you may not get as many likes when you say this. And I said, what? What do you mean a bunch of likes? And the whole idea is that you say something and you get all this following of people and they follow you everywhere. And they listen to everything you have to say. And you make some statement. And one of the things that's really bothering me, and I'm off track really bad now, but one of the things that's really bothering me today is the, what they call them, memes. Is that what they are? So now it's all about, let's get an important quote from this guy. All right? So when a conference is going on, you get these things shot out there. He made a, he made a quote. It's a powerful quote. Here's a quote. Here's a quote. Here's a quote. I'm like, man, look, we have taken our whole theology and we've reduced it down to a sentence. And you can't, like MacArthur says, you can't debate theology on Twitter. You can't do that. It's absurd to begin with, to even begin to try to that, because you can't, you can't think through it all, at all. Anyway, so you have the lust of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, and that's basically... The word bios, the things of life. It's not of the Father, but is of this world. And he reminds us the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of the Father abides forever. In Colossians 2.8, it says, Beware lest any of you cheat are cheated through philosophy. Here's a very important one today. I mean, listen to this. Colossians 2.8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy, the love of man's wisdom. The love of man's wisdom and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. That If that doesn't characterize where we are today, I don't know what does. The philosophies of men that have come into the church, the ideologies of the world have infiltrated the church so much in many cases, it's hard to see the difference in the thinking of a Christian and a secular person. I mean, in some cases, sadly, the only difference is where that Christian is on Sunday and whether or not they have a fish emblem on their car or not. The stats verify all of this. I mean, you can go and look it up yourself. The tragic reality of the philosophies that have come into the church over the years, right? Darwinianism, humanism, relativism, materialism, pragmatism, psychology, anthropology, sociology, ecclesiology, political science, philosophy regarding family and marriage and the raising of children and discipline, education and economics. Now, all of those things, when they have a biblical worldview attached to them, they can be helpful. But when they don't, and they're all about what man thinks and what man's wisdom is and man's philosophy, and it's bankrupt of the things of God and the spirit of God and the word of God, then it has serious issues. And then you have the current love right now in the church of the social justice critical race stuff that's still going on. There's no single word, I believe, that perfectly describes where the world is today than the word secularism. Now, they're telling us uh, that secularism is on its way out, that we finally have found out that secularism is bankrupt. It doesn't work. It doesn't produce what they promised. The fruit is bad. 
And so I thought, okay, well, what's next? If secularism is going out, then there's only one thing left. Full-blown, unadulterated paganism. That's it. I mean, if you don't go to Christianity and you're going to abandon secularism, you only got one thing left. That's it. Full-blown paganism. Which in many, many contexts of our culture, we are already there. Um, this secularism, though, however, has been an umbrella term that's kind of wrapped up this whole idea of humanism, relativism, pragmatism, pluralism, hedonism, and materialism, all the isms that are the secular worldview in which we live in today. Well, I have a whole lot more I need to say about that, but I'm running out of time. Probably the best single statement about secularism was the one stated by Carl Sagan many years ago now on television called Cosmos. And he was pictured standing before a spectacular view of the heavens and the swirling galaxies. And he said this, the cosmos is all that there ever is, ever was, and ever will be. Is that what you believe? I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. I believe this is the beginning. This is just the beginning. Because once you know Christ, you live forever in heaven with him. And I don't even believe as far as the lost person is concerned, this is not the end for them. They will live somewhere. It'll be in hell apart from Christ. That idea that this is all there is and this is all we have and that's the world thinking. That's not God. That's not the word. That's not Christ. R.C. Sproul writes, for secularism, all life, every human value, every human activity must be understood in light of the present time. What matters is now and only now. All access to the above and beyond is blocked. There is no exit. You can't find your way out. The only way out is through Christ. It's the only way out. So how do you defeat this? How do you battle this? Well, he doesn't just leave us with the negative to stop being conformed to the world, but he gives us the positive. And the positive is to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that we'll cover next time when I get back from India. Lord willing. Well, I hope that helps a little bit today. I can assure you that sometime in the future, I'm not giving any guarantee we'll speed up. But I just want you to understand these two verses before we go any further because these are so foundational to the rest of the book of Romans. We've got to understand this. And not only that, we've got to practice it, right? We've got to put in place what we know and understand and believe and the word of God so that we can be the light on the hill to this dark world, folks, that needs Christ. And they're everywhere around us, people who need Christ. So let's take a moment and close in prayer. We'll have our closing hymn, and then we'll receive our, our two members into our church. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for this day. And, Lord, we are blessed to have your word. We are so rich, so rich. Lord, I pray that we as a body of Christ here in this place here in West Columbia would be filled with the word of God, 
our hearts and minds saturated with Scripture, that our worldview, our thinking, our mindset, our reactions, even our involuntary reactions when we don't even have time to think about it would be godly and biblical. I pray, Lord, that we would also season all that we do with grace, with love, with mercy, and long-suffering to our lost friends and family, the people around us who walk in darkness, who are blind to the truth, who know no better than what they've heard and what they've learned. Lord, we're not good people because we're good. We're only good because of Christ. And we don't have eyes that are open because we were better and more intelligent than others. We only have eyes that are open because you gave us sight. And we're not alive today, Lord God, because we're more righteous than others or we have some ability than others. But, Lord, we're only alive today because you have resurrected us from the dead. We give you praise and honor for all that is done. We ask you, Father, to help us to be the kind of people you've called us to, to walk worthy of the calling, to be a proper ambassador for Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together. Number 352, I love thy kingdom, Lord. Thank you.